John chapter 18, John chapter 18, we were in this text last Sunday, we considered especially the contrast between Jesus and the religious leaders of the Jews who were a lynching party seeking to bring Jesus to the cross. These men, these Sanhedrin, as they feigned and faked this desire to remain uncorrupted so they could keep the Passover, we saw that actually they were riddled with spiritual hypocrisy. They had this spiritual cancer coursing through their spiritual veins. This week I want to show you the the contrast between Jesus and Pilate. I want to focus on that conversation that we see in John 18, uh, specifically given to us by the apostle to show us the glory of Christ. I think John writes the account the way he does, A, because that's how it happened, but also B, because he wants to show you the clear difference between our glorious Savior as it stands against the background of corrupt humanity, and we see that specifically in Pilate. As it relates to Pilate, here he is, the human governor of, frankly, a a relatively insignificant region of the Roman Empire. It's riddled, and he is riddled with the fear of man. He finds himself caught in a, a political pickle which he cannot escape. There is no easy answer for Pilate in John 18. And it weighs heavy on him, and he is slow to make a decision. He seems to desire to know the truth. He seems to want to do the right thing. But he just can't bring himself to stand up for justice in the face of the Sanhedrin and thereby probably likely lose his job and maybe even his life. He just can't cross that threshold. And in contrast to that, you have Jesus, who is the one who has come into the world to bear witness to the truth. This is why he is here. Every word out of his mouth is true. Every action and response is guided by his steadfast confidence in his heavenly Father's plan and will to accomplish his purposes. So as the heat is turned up in the oven of Jesus' trial, as it were, he stands the test. He makes good on the reason why he was here, and he professes the good confession. You know this text, we read it last week, but look at it with me again. Luke 8, or excuse me, John 18, 28 to 40. John 18, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? So they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Certainly as the text was read, you saw the contrast between these two men, right? Between Pilate and Jesus. Pilate is unsteady and unstable. Jesus is strong and steadfast. Pilate is unsure of what is true, while Jesus is the very apostle sent from heaven 
to bear witness to the truth. Pilate is gripped by the fear of man and of losing his position of of human power. And Jesus is gripped with love for his father and a resolve to fulfill his mission, even though it will cost him his life. Pilate is a ruler who's worldly-minded as he's tossed about on the waves of this political storm that Jesus represents before him. While Jesus is kingdom-focused and completely calm, even as his life hangs in the balance. It's really an astounding display of the wisdom and the glory of the Savior. They tell you in seminaries, they train you to preach, have a point to your sermon and make that point clear. Here's the point. Worship Jesus. He's amazing. He shines from this text in all of his glory. See his glory. Be humbled before your Savior and long to be like him, to be conformed to his image. I don't want you to get the wrong idea about Jesus here, that somehow he kind of skates above all the difficulty in John 18. That somehow this is just an easy cruise down Main Street through life and, and he is untouched and unaffected by this political powder keg. No, in a matter of minutes, he's about to be scourged, which will almost kill him. And then he's going to be nailed to a cross in a few hours and and hung there to die, knowing the greatest human agony ever known to mankind, not not to mention the spiritual agony of bearing our sins in his body on the tree. There's a lot riding on this going as is planned. But Jesus is steadfast determined, and calm. You see this tightrope being walked by Jesus in this text. I want to lay out for you the great contrast between Pilate, and I'll make the case to you that I really think he's representative of, of every human authority that's ever lived. He's kind of a microcosm of, of what we see in human government in world history and in our own day. And I want to show you Jesus, our glorious Savior. And I want to look first at Pilate's growing consternation And then at Jesus' good confession. As you look at Pilate throughout this exchange with Jesus, you sense an escalation in the situation for Pilate, don't you? So in verse 33, he enters into his private headquarters. He's kind of sniffed out the the enmity and the subterfuge of the Sanhedrin. He he knows they're playing a game. And so he pulls Jesus into his private headquarters. He's going to have a a one-on-one conversation with this accused man, Jesus from Nazareth. In verse 33, he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Then in verse 37, he says to Jesus, so you are a king then, after Jesus has answered it. And then in verse 38, he kind of verbally throws up his hands and says, what is the truth? What is truth? And when he marches out and declares Jesus guiltless of the charges and tries to release Jesus in verses 39 and 40, he is confronted by the crowd and capitulates. The pilot goes from not really knowing much about Jesus in verse 33, trying to figure out who this guy is, what, are these accusations real, what did he actually do, to verse 39, he's trying to release Jesus. He's trying to distance himself from this man and get out of this political pickle. And it, frankly, it's really easy. As you read John 18, uh, and by the way, John's gospel gives us the most detail of Jesus and Pilate and their interaction That's because John is writing much later than the other three Gospels. He knows what they've said. He expects you to know what they've said. And so he's filling in the cracks. He's showing you what else happens. You can understand it better. And he's telling you more of what was said between Jesus and Pilate. It's really easy as you read this story to, to think, you know, Pilate's just a political hack. Come on, man, get it together. Stand for justice and righteousness and truth. How hard is this to figure out what is true? Well, That's not playing fair, really, to Pilate, is it? That's not giving him a fair shake. In fact, I want to paint the the political picture, and it might bore you to tears if it does. I'm sorry. I'll give you a Kleenex later. But Pilate was facing an incredibly difficult political powder keg before him. He was the prefect, or the governor, as it were, of Judea. It's a small backwater part of the Roman Empire. It really doesn't mean much in the Roman Empire, but it has constant problems. So if you're sitting in Rome and you're in power, you're a senator or you're the Caesar, the emperor, you just want Judea to not make noise. You want it to just go well there. And so uh, Pilate was 
appointed to come to Judea in A.D. 26. And then he was removed from office in A.D. 36 because of some really terrible political choices he made. So he serves for about 10 years in the region of Judea. He's the fifth governor appointed by Rome over this region, and really he's the only one that we have much of a historical record about. In fact, in 1961, through an archaeological dig in Jerusalem, they found more, or excuse me, in Caesarea, they found more evidence of Pilate. They found Pilate's name on a placard, and it was dated to this exact time. So there's clear evidence. This is actual history. Pilate really lived. He really had this conversation with our Lord. He was a governor, and God, by his providence, has given us more information about Pilate than any of the other governors who served in Judea during this era. Before coming to Judea, he was part of the uh, Praetorian Guard, which was the the group of about 9,000 Roman soldiers, well-trained and well-armed, who occupied a fortress just outside of Caesar's palace. Basically, they were the secret service. They were the elite of the elite These were the the best of the best. And so Pilate was part of that guard. He was rising through the ranks, and he was good friends with the the commander of that guard, a man by the name of Sejanus. And Sejanus really kind of cuddled up next to the emperor because, you know, if if your military commander, as the emperor, if your military commander likes you, then it's a good chance you'll live longer. And so he likes Sejanus. He put him in that spot for a reason. And they cozy up to one another. And Tiberius, at this point in his life, he's a lonely man. Uh, Most of his family is is gone or exiled for keeping and protecting his own power. He's he's kind of by himself, and Sejanus is really one of his only friends. And by the time that Pilate uh, is uh, being put into Judea as governor, Sejanus is basically running the government. Now, Tiberius doesn't think that. He thinks he's running the government, but everything Sejanus suggests and he does it carefully and you know, politically correct and all that, makes, makes uh, Tiberius think that he's running things, but Sejanus is essentially running it. And so he would often make suggestions of, hey, I think you should appoint this man to this place. Well, he and Pilate were good friends. And so he suggested that Pilate be put into power in Judea to go and, and be the arm of Rome to keep that uh, place in, in a position of peace and in uh, position of submission to Rome. Historians of the first century tell us that when Pilate got on the ground in AD 26, he immediately tried to rule over the Jews with a strong arm. His theory was come in and whack them with a good big stick. Carry a good big stick, as one of our presidents famously said. And that's exactly what he did. He carried a big stick and he came in. And so immediately after arriving in Judea, he ordered that the Roman standards or the Roman flags that were embossed with Caesar's likeness. So Tiberius's face was on these flags. He said, take those flags and go up to Jerusalem and post them in Jerusalem in obvious places so that every one of the Jews knows that Rome is in charge. Seems like a reasonable thing from a Roman perspective, but for every Jew living in Jerusalem and in Judea, this violated every one of their religious sensibilities. How dare a Roman come and fly the flag and the the image of their God, their Caesar, in our midst? In fact, no other Roman prefect had ever done anything like this because they kind of inherently understood that would be poking the bear and that would be a bad idea. Pilate said, you know what, I'm going to poke the bear, and then I'm going to wrestle it to the ground. So he poked the bear, he launched the standards through Jerusalem, and so uh, the Jews were in outrage, of course, and they sent a a group of men to uh, petition Pilate. He was in Caesarea, Jerusalem's up in the mountain region in the center of the country, Caesarea is down by the Mediterranean Sea, of course, if you're the Roman governor, you're going to live by the sea. He lives down in the palace in Caesarea, they send a petition party down to Pilate, and they beg him to remove the standards. He says, no. They say, please. He says, no. They say, you must. He says, no. They sit there for five days and five nights in his courtyard of his palace, begging him by their presence and with their voice to remove the standards. After five days, Pilate's had enough. On the sixth day, he says, you know what? I'm going to have a group of soldiers surround them. They do. 
And at Pilate's signal, they all draw their swords in a very aggressive fashion, letting the Jews know, if you don't leave, you will die. You would think that'd be the end of the deal, but the Jews have apparently planned for this, and as Josephus tells us, they laid on the pavement and bared their necks and said, please kill us because we'd rather die than have Caesar's image in our capital. Pilate had been checkmated. He realized that he was not going to win this thing. And so he ordered that the flags be taken down and the Jews could return home in peace. But another political blunder was just around the corner. He wanted to build an aqueduct to bring water from 34 miles away into Jerusalem. You know, a nice thing to do for the Jewish people. As Roman governor, he thought it would be a good idea for them to have more water. And so he decided that they should pay for it. And so he robbed the temple treasury to pay to build the aqueduct to bring them water. You can imagine how this upset the Jewish people to have their religious gifts given to the Lord taken to build an aqueduct by a Roman governor. And so there was an uprising in Jerusalem. Pilate and his crew went to Jerusalem to squelch the uprising, and he ordered his his, uh, soldiers to enter into the crowd and to dress like civilians and to have their weapons hidden under their robes, under their togas. And and at the scene, they were to, or at the the signal from Pilate, they were to pull out their weapons and, and beat some Jews, you know, just a few, put them into submission and disperse the crowd. Well, as soldiers tend to do, they overreacted and hit a little hard and hurt too many people and killed way too many people. And this became a huge blight on Pilate's reign as a bloodbath of oppression. And then in AD 31, so we're five years into his reign, halfway through, in October of that year, which would have been the second year of Jesus's public ministry, to kind of put it in perspective with the life of Jesus, someone convinced Emperor Tiberius that Sejanus, his right-hand man, the one who had put Pilate in position in Judea, that Sejanus was actually wanting his job. He actually wanted to be emperor and, and that he was actually working his way in to, to get Tiberius out. And if you know anything about world history and Roman history and history of empires and the rise and fall of nations, you know that that's one of the worst things that can be suspected of you as an inferior to be wanting the job of your superior. You're probably going to die. And that's exactly what happened. Tiberius was convinced, and so he ordered uh, another one to take the Praetorian Guard post and put Sejanus to death. So here we are, October 31 AD, five years into Pilate's reign, and the person who put him there, and frankly, the person who's covering for him, who's helping blunt the blows of the news to Tiberius that Pilate's doing a terrible job, that guy's now gone. He's no longer the right-hand man of the emperor Tiberius. So now if Pilate makes one more wrong move, it's going to go right to to Tiberius, and it's likely going to end in his exile or his execution or both. This is a political powder keg. On top of that, Luke 13 verse 1 gives us very little information, but it tells us, Luke tells us in that chapter that Pilate had mingled blood with some of the Galileans with their sacrifice. So he had essentially killed Galileans while they were sacrificing and had mingled their blood with their sacrifice. Now, we don't know much about when that happened, but just putting the pieces of the puzzle together, the best we can figure out is that was probably in A.D. 32. And it's probably at the Passover feast, which is in uh, March, April of our calendar. So you have October of 31, Sejanus dies. A few months later, at Passover, something happens on the Temple Mount. And as we know from our account, Pilate would always come up to Jerusalem during Passover. Something's going on, and he orders the execution of some Jews who happen to be from Galilee, and it happens to be on the Temple Mount, and their shed blood mingles with their sacrifices in, uh, as they offer it to the Lord. Now, Pilate doesn't have rule or territorial authority over Galilee. Herod Antipas does. And so now you understand a little bit of the tension between Herod Antipas and Pontius Pilate the next year at the next Passover, which is John 18. Because Pilate had people from Herod's rule killed in Jerusalem. This became a huge, huge problem in Pilate's reign. And so you now are a Passover later, The last Passover, Pilate had a huge blunder, killed Galileans on the temple complex, 
had their blood mingled with their offerings. And now here we are, and he, in the early morning hours, is confronted by the Sanhedrin and told, this man's making himself a king, put him to death. Also, sometime that same year in in A.D. 32, Pilate decided to put Roman shields up in the palace that Herod the Great had built in Jerusalem. He did this kind of like what he did with the standards, but kind of on a muted scale. He wanted to put it up to show the Jews, listen, I am loyal to Tiberius. Now, why is that important? Because Sejanus is dead, and Tiberius is suspicious of everyone that Sejanus put in place. And so Pilate wants Tiberius to know, I'm loyal to you. And so he tries to score points with Tiberius and puts up these shields in the palace of Herod that have uh, the Roman emblem on them, not the, not the embossment of the emperor, but all of the Roman insignias. And of course, the Jews are outraged by this display, and even the sons of Herod themselves, who have some Jewish connections more than Pilate does, are also outraged, and they actually sent a delegation to Tiberius to ask him what should happen with these shields. Tiberius wrote back, and in no uh, mixing of words, expressed his strong disapproval of the shields. He told Pilate to take them down immediately and had another political blunder for Pilate. And so to kind of bring it all together, paint the political landscape for Pilate as he comes into John 18. He is on thin ice with his emperor. His emperor holds him suspect because of his appointment by Sejanus and his poor handling of everything, especially over the last year. Just a year earlier, he had executed some Jews on the temple complex, another political blunder. Herod Antipas is now angry with him. The Sanhedrin know that they have Pilate right where they want him. They know that they have Pilate captive to whatever they want to do because they are the political powerhouse in Jerusalem representing the Jewish nation. And Pilate cannot afford to make the Jews mad again. Because what they're going to do is write Tiberius and say, this guy Pilate is not loyal to you. He's entertaining other people who want to be king instead of you, and Tiberius is going to get rid of Pilate. So in Luke 23, we're told that the Sanhedrin, when Pilate says, what accusations do you make against this man? They made a threefold accusation. They said, this Jesus is misleading our nation. He's forbidding the paying of taxes to Caesar. And he's claiming to be Christ, the king of Israel. Now, all of those are going to grab Pilate's attention, right? But especially that last one, that he's leading some kind of insurrection against the emperor. And Pilate knows one wrong move and my career is over, so I have to handle this with utmost care. And so he brings Jesus into his headquarters and has this private interview away from the bloodthirsty chief priests. And his number one question is not, did you pay taxes? It's not, have you told others to pay taxes? His number one question is, are you the king of the Jews? Are you claiming to be the king of the Jews? Are you the king? In other words, what he's after is, are you you leading an uprising against Rome? Do you deserve to die because you're intending to overthrow Roman rule? Jesus probes him to see if Pilate's asking a genuine question. We'll talk about that in a minute. And as Pilate makes it clear, listen, I have no dog in this fight between you and the Sanhedrin. I just want to know, what have you done, Jesus? Jesus answers him in verse 36. He says, I have a kingdom that's not of this world, which means I I am a king. And so Pilate asks the follow-up question, so you are a king? And Jesus answers with a good confession, what you have said is true. It is as you have said, what you have spoken is right. And then he proclaims, Jesus does, proclaims himself to be the witness to all that is true. And then Pilate, in his notorious, infamous question, what is truth? I know we've taken that out of John 18. We've made that the banner for our day, which in many ways it is. We live in a a post-truth era. Truth is whatever you want to mold and shape it to be for however you want to live and whatever you want to do. But I don't think that's what Pilate's doing here. And I'll make the case to that end. What astounds me about this whole picture is how perplexed Pilate is over what to do. So I've painted the picture for you. You know the the political hotbed that he's in and the hot seat that he's in. What is the easiest thing to do? What lever do you pull at this point? 
Jesus dies, right? Execute Jesus. That, I mean, that is the simplest, most politically expedient thing to do in this moment. There really is almost no risk for a Roman governor to have a so-called insurrectionist put to death. And yet Pilate is slow to make a move. In fact, the deeper he gets in with Jesus, the more confused he gets. And, and the more confused he gets, he's not just confused, he has consternation. He has anxiety about this. He is torn up inside about what he should do. And I ask you this morning, why? Why? From a human perspective, there, there is a really simple choice here. Why doesn't he just say, guilty, take him to the cross? Before I answer that question, you have to know that Pilate's pronouncement of Jesus as innocent in verse 38 is the first of four times in the gospel record when Pilate will say publicly, I find no guilt in this man. Four times, four times he will stand on his bema seat outside of the walls of Jerusalem and he will say, this man is innocent. Four times. On top of that, four times, he will try to get Jesus released. We see that right away in verse 39. He tries to use this method of releasing a prisoner at every Passover. And so he says, hey, certainly they'll want to get rid of Jesus. The crowd, he knows what the Sanhedrin will say. But by this time, the sun has come up. Jerusalem is bustling with people. A crowd has gathered in the galley around Pilate's bema seat. He comes out after having interviewed Jesus, and, and he's ready to say, listen, he is not guilty. And he sees the crowd, and he thinks, you know what? I will have my own political move in this moment. I'll win this game. I'll offer to the crowd, who do you want to have me release to you? And through influence of the Sanhedrin, while he was interviewing Jesus, the Sanhedrin have influenced the crowd to say, Barabbas. What do you want me to do with this Jesus? We'll come to that in chapter 19. Crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate has pronounced Jesus' innocence. He's tried to get rid of Jesus, tried to release him. I think you see the view of Pilate of Jesus as he writes on the placard above Jesus' cross what he believes about Jesus. He could have just written it in, in Latin, which most people would have known, the, the main language of the Roman Empire. He could have written it, written it in Greek, which is the lingua franca, the, the business language of the day. He could have written it in Hebrew, just outside of Jerusalem, so everybody would have been able to read Hebrew. But he writes it in all three, because he wants everybody who passes by the cross of Jesus to know Jesus is the king of Israel. Now, I don't know if Pilate was a believer. There's, there's legend to that end, especially in the Egyptian Coptic church. They've made Pilate and his wife saints in their tradition. It's a lot of conjecture. We have no idea. We, I really have no idea. But you read John 18 and 19, and you see that Pilate is filled with confusion and anxiety, and he is hesitant to have Jesus killed. I think Pilate is some kind of seeker. He really is wanting to know the truth. Certainly he has some Roman philosophy going on in his mind, the, the skepticism of can we even know truth? Is it even findable? Why even bother? Just live your life, case, sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. Just live for today and have fun. Certainly he's got that in his heart, but I think as he sees truth embodied in front of him in a man who has never been anything but true, his whole world comes crashing down. His whole worldview starts colliding into each other. And now he's wondering, what is truth? And he doesn't know what to do. Before we move on to Jesus' good confession, I want you to take stock of Pilate again. Remember, I think he represents every godless human authority in human history and in present day. He is the picture of how politics and power in politics work. This doesn't matter, matter if you're in the United Kingdom or you're in Spain or you're in America or you're in Brazil. It doesn't matter. The, the, these realities we see played out on the personal level for Pilate are what every human authority wrestles through. He's captured by fear of man and by the fear of losing his position. 
He's caught between loyalty to his Caesar and wise governing of an unruly people. He's tiptoeing his way through a political minefield, and and it's exhausting and bewildering. He doesn't know what step to take next. He's captured by the world realities of running a kingdom on earth, and he is confused by it all. He's not even sure what is truth anymore. Well, he's also captive to powers outside of his control that demand an answer and a ruling. His soul is in turmoil as he knows the right thing to do, but to do the right thing would be a political nightmare. And so he can't do that which is right and just as it relates to Jesus. Rare are those in politics who can use their authority to uphold righteousness and justice and not get caught up in the power grabs and the fear of man that dominate that landscape. Pilate is the negative contrast to our glorious Savior. Consider for a few minutes our Lord Jesus. This question by Pilate and the answer that is given by Jesus are recorded in all four Gospels. They all tell us that Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And they all tell us, Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. Or as the other Gospels record, it is as you say. Quite literally, Jesus is agreeing with Pilate that he is a king. And this makes up the good confession of our Lord. He has nothing to hide. He is being careful in how he answers the question, but he is answering the question. Yes, I am a king. You might not remember this, but in Paul, one of Paul's last letters, 1 Timothy, he's writing to his protege in the faith, a young pastor whom he's left in Ephesus, which by that time is a majorly important Christian center, a church that really impacts the rest of the Christian world. He's left Timothy there to, to set things in order and keep things in order, telling him how the church should operate as the, the pillar and buttress of truth. He comes to the end of that letter, and, and he, in chapter 6, he, he fills up his last few thoughts for Timothy with a bunch of commands. Tells him all these things to flee. Don't get caught up in love of money. Flee worldliness and ungodliness. And, and tells him all the things that are a danger to being faithful to the Lord. And then he says to Timothy, keep this charge that I've given you, this command to be faithful in the ministry about which you made this good confession in front of many witnesses. And then he says to him, keep that commandment on the basis of Jesus Christ, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. You see what Paul's doing? He's telling Timothy, you need to keep the good confession. And your model for keeping the good confession is not me, Paul. It is your Lord, Jesus who before Pontius Pilate in his testimony there made the good confession. You see, beloved, Jesus is showing us how to be witnesses to the world. He's showing us how we must, like him, be apostles of the truth, as it were, sent from heaven into the world to speak the truth of God. Under moments even of intense and immense pressure, Before politically powerful men, Jesus shows us the way. And so as we see this confession of Jesus, I want to just show you three things about it to, like, well, how do I do this? What are the marks of this good confession? Well, notice in verse 34 that it's a discerning confession. It's good because it's discerning. He's not playing dumb here with Pilate. He's not leading Pilate along when he asks him, are you asking out of your own accord or did someone set you up to the question? Jesus, as Dr. Bookman likes to say, is not Superman who likes to put on Clark Kent clothes. He's not deity dressed in humanity and takes off his humanity whenever it doesn't suit the moment. He is truly God and truly man in, in mystery joined together in one person, the Lord Jesus. And in his humanity, in his, in his experience on earth, he lived your life walked through this life like you do, and you don't always know what everyone else is thinking, do you? Now, of course, by the Spirit's leading, and at key moments, he was given 
the access of his divine nature to know what people thought or to perform supernatural, omnipotent acts. And he held this in amazing tension and great mystery to us that blows our mind. But when he asked Pilate this question, he really does not know what's going on here. Where does Pilate sit in this whole political hullabaloo? Are you really wanting to know the truth, Pilate, or are you just on the witch hunt like everyone else? And so he asks him, what do you really want to know here? He's not going to cast the pearls of truth before the swine of those who are bloodthirsty and unjust. In fact, if you study the other trials that Jesus goes through, you'll see that he's quite reticent to answer all throughout, so much so that the prophet Isaiah could say 700 years before that he would be silent like a lamb being led to its shearers. Jesus is quiet most of the time when they're throwing accusations at him because he's not going to throw the the truth before them and have it fall to the ground. Now he knows that, that Pilate proves that he doesn't have a dog in the fight and Jesus is willing to have the conversation. So this good confession before Pilate is a discerning confession and I commend to you our Lord Jesus' example here. You are to be discerning with the truth. You are to follow our Lord and be careful with the truth. Be bold with the truth. Be clear about the truth and be discerning with the truth. Ask God by His Spirit to show you when to speak up and when to shut up. When to say something and when just to pray. When to enter into a conversation with someone who posts something on Facebook to poke all the Christians they know in their life. And when to just let it go and get off Facebook and get on your knees for that person's soul. Be discerning in holding fast to this good confession. Notice that Jesus' confession is also kingdom focused. That's in verse 36. Jesus answered Pilate's question about being a king with an answer about the nature of his kingdom. It's kind of a backdoor approach. He doesn't just say, yeah, I'm a king. So what? He says, no, I have a kingdom that is not of this world. And then he uses logic that Pilate would understand as a ruler over soldiers. He says, you can know that I'm not a king of this world because I haven't called my soldiers to to come and rescue me from the grip of the Jews. What human king ruling over a human realm would let himself be arrested? What, what servants of that king would let him be taken into, uh, in, into a trial like this of injustice and of complete debauchery? Certainly, Jesus is ruling over a different kind of kingdom. This reality is what propels Jesus in this moment to remain steadfast and faithful, Beloved, his life hangs in the balance. How how this goes will determine if he lives or dies. And you can imagine the temptation in this moment to give an evasive answer. Were you and I in this spot, having this question put to us, could we not have easily exposed the envy and the conceit and the deceit of the Sanhedrin? Could we not have said, well, actually, I didn't tell anyone they shouldn't pay taxes. What I actually said was, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And by the way, I paid my own taxes. Go back and look at the record. He didn't say, yeah, you know what? I've talked about a kingdom, but it's a kingdom of heaven. In fact, that's the phrase I've used a lot, kingdom of heaven. And, and it's, it's a kingdom that's coming, but it's not here. I'm not interested in, in overthrowing you, Pilate. So, you know, really, you probably should just let me go. Like He could have worked the system with an evasive answer to get out of this pickle. But instead, he gives the good confession. He admits that he's a king by describing the nature and the source of his kingdom. And in speaking the truth faithfully before Pilate, he guarantees two things. And if you catch nothing else, which is likely, catch only this. He was after his acquittal and his execution. This is why Jesus operates the way he does in John 18, because he's after two things. He must be acquitted. He must have it known to world history and to biblical history and for all time and eternity that he was guiltless. I find no guilt in this man four times. 
let him go four times. He is without guilt. But he's not just after an acquittal, because if he's after an acquittal, he could easily have gotten that and been on his merry way and had a good Friday. Instead, he's also after his execution. He has come into this world to die, to bear witness to the truth. And part of bearing witness to the truth is the truth that sinners need a Savior that can only be provided for them from heaven. And Jesus has come not only to say that, but to be that, to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is saying here, by the way, that his kingdom is of an otherworldly type and source. It's like what he said in John 15, and then again in John 17, when he spoke of his disciples not being of the world, but in the world. They had been born from above and had been given a new nature, a new life, and a new purpose. He's saying, that's, that's my kingdom. It's from a different place. It's from above. It's, it's of a different nature and source. But just because it's of a different nature and source, I do not believe that means it does not have physical representation. And this is a, a verse often used to make that point, and I completely disagree. I don't think you can take John 19.36 and, and read that into all the other texts about the kingdom. Old Testament prophets like Zechariah or New Testament prophets like John in Revelation. I don't think you can read Revelation chapter 20 with John 19.36 as the paradigm through which you read it all. I don't think you can read the promise in Revelation where the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdoms of God's beloved Son and interpret that to mean that that's a spiritual development and a spiritual kingdom alone. I think you must uphold Scripture, especially in Revelation 20, and say that Jesus will one day physically reign on this physical world when all of the kingdoms of the earth will bow the knee to King Jesus and he will rule and reign as king over all nations for a thousand-year period. He says to Pilate, listen, I'm not bringing a kingdom that is like your kingdom. I have a kingdom that's on a different plane, of a different nature, of a greater consequence. And this really is what drives the good confession of Jesus. Isn't this what keeps him faithful in the face of, of this pressure from Pilate? He knows that Pilate's focused on this worldly kingdom. He's concerned for the affairs of state that are immediately before him. But Jesus is focused on something else. He's focused on something greater and bigger, an eternal kingdom that far surpasses the temporal kingdom of Pilate. He's not intimidated by the show of political power and military might and people beating him and plucking out his beard and spitting on him and nailing him to a cross. None of that intimidates Jesus. Because he's kingdom focused. He's looking beyond this moment to an eternal reality that will ultimately trump all of these temporal ones. And so too for us, beloved, this is the way. If you're going to be faithful in the truth and in a world that hates you because you are of the truth, then you must be faithful by being kingdom focused, kingdom minded. You can only be fearless in front of human rulers who threaten your soul, your body to death when you're convinced that your soul is part of an eternal kingdom. Or you can believe the promise of Jesus that says you do not need to fear man who can kill body but who cannot touch your soul. Rather, fear God who can throw both body and soul into hell. It's only if you're convinced as the world closes its gates around the church, expects us to kowtow to what they believe to be the truth or how they expect us to act in their make-believe world of so-called truth. As they infringe upon the church and tell us how to act, how to think, and how to behave, and how to worship, it is only if you look beyond this kingdom if you look to a kingdom that's higher and greater and eternal, and to a king who rules over all earthly magistrates, both now and on the eternal day, that you, under threat of your life, will boldly yet discerningly stand and say, this is the truth. Here I stand. I can do no other. 
We must be like Jesus, kingdom focused. He's also truth proclaiming in his good confession. That's in verse 37. Pilate hears what Jesus says about his kingdom and his takeaway is, so you are a king, right? And Jesus answers and says, I have come into the world for this very reason. And I have been born for this very reason. And that is to bear witness about the truth. Notice that Jesus doesn't hem and haw with the answer. He doesn't give 200 caveats, 300 footnotes, 10 appendices. Yeah, well, but, no, he just is straightforward. Yes, it is as you have said. Here is the essence of the good confession of Jesus. He stands by the truth, though he knows it's going to cost him his life. In fact, he stands by the truth because he knows it's going to cost him his life. He's surrounded by politically-minded men who are zealous for their religious version of the truth, but he sees that these chief priests are willing to play with the truth like Plato in their hands. As Pilate looks at these men, these chief priests who are playing with the truth and doesn't know what he himself should do, he asks that, that question, what is truth? And here standing before him is the man who embodies truth. Here is truth in living color right before him, and he can't see the truth. You notice the subtle testimony of Jesus to his eternal existence and his incarnation in verse 37? It's the only time, by the way, in the Gospel of John where he explicitly speaks of the birth of Jesus. You could maybe make the case, John 1.14, that the word became flesh. That would be a reference to his birth. This is the only time in John's gospel where he says that Jesus was born. And then he says he not only was born, but he came into this world for this very purpose. It's a subtle, though clear reference to the pre-existence of Jesus. He, he came into this world as one sent by the Father. He said that all throughout the gospel of John. And he was born into this world through human means, taking upon himself human nature thereby setting himself up, even through his trial, to be our Redeemer. Truly God and truly man, able to give his life as a ransom for our eternal salvation. Beloved, this is the glorious Christ who rescues us from our sins. He says only those who are of the truth will receive the witness of this truth by Jesus Really, isn't that a way of Jesus putting the question to Pilate? Are you Pilate of the truth? You've heard the truth from my mouth. I've witnessed it to you. I've come into the world for that very purpose. Only those who are of the truth can hear me. Pilate, do you hear me? And so the question's put to you this morning, as it was to Pilate. Do you hear Jesus? Do you hear his witness to the truth? Do you believe the truth brought to us by the proclaimer of truth, Jesus himself? Because he proclaimed the truth, he will be put to death by the Sanhedrin through the means of this Roman governor, Pilate. This is why they want him dead, because he speaks the truth. This is why the world will hate you. This is why the world will oppose you, because you speak the truth. But all those who are of the truth will hear the truth, both from your Lord and from your own lips as you parrot what our Lord has said. And so in a world of deceit and confusion, a world that doesn't know what is true about basic things like gender and sexuality and marriage and family, how desperate is the need for the church to rise to the occasion and be the purveyors, the witnesses of truth following our Lord Jesus? And saying to the world, here is what is true. And I warn you, like our Lord, it may cost you your life. But there will be nothing better for you to give your life for. As we finish this morning, there's two questions which press upon your soul from this text. The first is in regards to your relationship to this Jesus. Are you a part of his eternal kingdom? Is he your king? Does he rule over your life and heart? Are you of the truth? Have you heard his voice like a sheep and obeyed him as your good shepherd? Is he your only hope 
for eternal life? Is everything he has ever said all that you stake your eternity upon? The second question which presses upon your soul is are you following our Lord in this good confession in a world of confusion and political competition? Are you faithfully speaking the truth in discerning and kingdom-focused ways? Does your life and testimony show the, the pattern of Jesus that we've seen in John 18? Would others know that you are of the truth as Jesus, your Lord, is of the truth? Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, thank you for this time together in your word. Help us to be those who follow Jesus, as we've seen so clearly in this text, to make the good confession not just at moments of pressure or difficulty, but in all things. Help us, Father, to be people of the truth. I pray for those among us who may not know Christ, have heard of him, but don't actually know him, aren't actually in his kingdom yet. Lord, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation, that you would rescue them from the domain of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Give them eternal life, joy, and hope, and peace through Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Father, would you accomplish this as only you could so that you alone would receive the glory. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us as we sing, There's a Savior. faces, uh, we're directed through it by Jesus, who is our light and our life. As you go your way, I want to just remind you of a few things and, and inform you of a, of a meeting.